Welcome to another episode of Governance in Africa Conversations. My name is Rob Telpaley, and you are listening to the series Governance in Africa Conversations from the Center of African Studies at the University of London School of Oriental and African Studies. This program is part of the Governance for Development in Africa initiative funded by the Mo Ibrahim Foundation. The initiative aims to enable Africans to improve the quality of governance in their countries by supporting them to develop skills and talents within an expert academic environment. The purpose is to study both the legal aspects of governance and the relationship between governance and economic development. In today's program, we have in the studio Kumi Naidu, a South African activist and international executive director of the environmental justice organization, Greenpeace. Kumi, welcome to SOAS, and thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you for having me. Kumi, you've often said that Africa is the richest continent below the ground, but the poorest above the ground. And that's a very provocative statement. Can you start by explaining what that means for you? Well, if you look at our natural resource base, uh, you name it, and Africa has it. And actually, I go beyond that. I say because we are one of the richest continents underneath the ground. It's precisely why we are one of the poorest continents above the ground, Mm -hmm. what in governance circles sometimes we call the resource curse. The reality is that historically and presently, most of our natural wealth has been extracted and the real value added to it is done in Europe and elsewhere. And in fact, there's very little benefit that flows to the African people. It is big multinational corporations in the oil, coal, gas, diamond Mm -hmm. sector. I jokingly say to my friends in Belgium, which is the center of diamonds is in Antwerp, Mm. I say, you know, you go all over Belgium and you dig, you won't find a single diamond. How did you actually mm. get, become the place that can make the beneficiation is the word that sure. is, uh, you know, used. So the difficulty for Africa now is that Africa is burning literally as a result of climate impacts already being witnessed across the continent. And right now we are finding more fossil fuels on the continent. And the science is telling us that actually burning any more fossil fuels is suicidal for future generations. And yes, we are pushing rich countries who built the economies on the basis of fossil fuel extraction, that they should stop as soon as possible. And if there is any carbon space, of course, Mm -hmm. by which we mean if we could burn any more carbon safely, which I don't believe we can anymore anyway, it should not be for those rich, mature, developed countries, but in fact, it should be available uh, to Africa and other parts of the developing world. The reality, though, is that, you know, we've seen a systematic rape of our Mm -hmm. continent from people first in the sense of slavery. And then, you know, even during the colonial period, uh, how people were treated uh, and exploited. And actually, to a large extent, we still have many of the legacies of the colonial period and many of the power dynamics Mm. that uh, existed. And what, to a large extent, we have from a governance perspective is the new independence elites in the African continent actually made common cause with their former colonial masters and tried to actually share the spoils of Africa's uh, wealth. So if we're brutally honest, the average African people, even in countries, take Saratomi and Principe, for example, where they, they found so much of oil wealth, for example, Mm -hmm. that every person in that country could be a millionaire, you know, uh, but that will never happen. So there has to be a very, very 
critical look at how the resources of Africa has been used, has been exploited and so on, especially now in a context where Africa is facing new threats such as uh, land grabs that are happening on a significant scale, mm. countries whose concerned about their own food security because of climate change and now looking at the African continent where there is parts which are still very fertile and is very amenable to agriculture. And again, this is impacting on African women farmers, it's dislodging communities and, and so on. So we want as Africans to be able to control our own resources to ensure that it's used for positive social development purposes and that the way those resources are used are governed in a transparent, accountable way, which is corruption-free. The last thing I would say is that the big challenge for African leadership for the future is whether, in fact, if the science and reality on the ground is crystal clear that burning fossil fuels is going to destroy um, not the planet, by the way, mm. because uh, people say, you know, we need to save the planet. We don't need to save the planet. The planet doesn't need saving. Mm. What's at stake here? Because if humanity warms up the planet to a point that we cannot exist on it, the planet will still be here. It'll be bruised and battered by and humanity's crimes on it. And in fact, it would be in a better shape that if we warmed it up to a point that humanity couldn't exist on it, the forest will replenish, the oceans will replenish and so on. This fight is about securing our children and grandchildren's future. Mm. And therefore, one of the big challenges of leadership that will be placed before African political and business leaders right now, as well as leaders all over the world, is when in fact our continent is the front line of climate impacts, and we can see that, even if it means short-term profit, should we do something that actually fundamentally underdevelops the continent. And those are the kinds of conversations that need to go beyond simply saying that Africa is the richest continent mm. below the ground and precisely for that reason we're one of the poorest continents above the ground. Sure. You cheated because you've basically answered my first three questions. But let's go back and, and clarify a little bit some of these terms that we're using. Um, governance, environmental sustainability. What exactly is the, the nexus between these two processes? Maybe we can talk about that in, in terms of focusing on the continent of Africa. I mean, if we talk about governance, you know, in simple terms, sure. it's about how do we manage the resources of society in an equitable way that mm. meets the basic needs of people and the basic rights of people to the right to food, education, health, sanitation, and so on. Okay. And when we look at those as elements of governance, then it's clear that, in fact, environmental protection is critically linked to governance because if we take, for example, the tragedy that we've seen in Darfur, mm. uh, most of the international media simply portray that as a sort of identity conflict. But if you go deeper into mm. it, we know that Lake Chad, one of the largest inland seas in the world, has shrunk to the size of what Ban Ki-moon calls a pond, which has contributed significantly to water scarcity. Then we got the Sahel Desert marching southwards, you know, at the rate of close to a mile a year now. And, you know, water scarcity, land scarcity, combined with food scarcity gave mm. us the toxic mix that allowed opportunistic political leaders to manipulate identity and, and, and create the kinds of conflicts that we've seen. So today, any person who wants to 
be a leader on the African mm. continent, mm. cannot say I'm interested in leading you and I don't care about the environment because the environment is inconsequential. It is fundamentally consequential for us now because our farmers across the continent are saying things like, you know, the rain is not coming when it mm. was supposed to come and the sun is coming when it shouldn't be coming and, and so on. So agriculture is already getting disrupted. Sure. So food security is linked to climatic patterns and so on. And then if we look at some of our natural assets, we still have considerable natural assets. And those natural assets are only assets when they exist, right? So the Congo Basin forest today is the second largest tropical rainforest in the world. It's a very, very precious asset for Africa and the world. Mm. And once we lose it, if we lose it, if we do not protect it, we don't have that asset to negotiate with the rest of the world. Let's just look at what Indonesia has done. The Indonesian government which also has a big tropical rainforest in Sumatra. You know, Greenpeace and other organizations, as well as the Indonesian government's own conversations with the Norwegian government, led to a $1 billion grant, not loan, to the Indonesian government to put a moratorium to stop further deforestation. Those are things, if we get our act together on the African continent, we can negotiate with the developed world. Because we must understand that protecting the Congo Basin Forest, for example, it helps us in Africa, but it is a resource to the world. There's sure. no reason why we should be shy to actually leverage that in a very positive way. Then, if you take the issue of uh, protecting our oceans, we do not want to happen now on the west coast of Africa what we've seen happen on the east coast of Africa. The phenomenon of the Somali pirates didn't just sort of one day people in Somalia woke up and said, wow, mm. wouldn't it be cool to be pirates? Mm. Why did they become pirates? Is because of the raping of our ocean by foreign trawlers, a lot of them European trawlers, and the livelihoods that people had for centuries where they had a reliance in the sea got wiped out. So if we look at Senegal and the moves the Senegal government made when Greenpeace and local fisher folk were campaigning to stop illegal fishing, stop these monster boats coming from uh, Europe and elsewhere and literally raping the ocean floor and taking a whole lot of things they don't need, you know, mm. small fish, types of fish that we need for the biodiversity of the ocean but uh, have no commercial value, including silt, because the way they fish is they take everything. Mm. Now, no political leader, as the president of Senegal recognizes, mm. and all the political parties in the run-up to the last election said, we will cancel those licenses, we'll institute a moratorium and so on. And what we are seeing is the ocean is replenishing slowly and local fisher folk are already beginning to catch uh, fish to survive because all these massive nets that the big monster boat used to put to prevent the fish getting closer to where people with small boats could fish. So the link between governance sure. and environment is fundamentally linked. The biggest threat to peace and security on the African continent moving forward is going to be food security and water security. Okay. Food security and water security are governance challenges. And food security and water security is completely linked with how we actually protect our environment. Sure. So there's no way people can say that governance and environment can be kept apart as we have done in the past. Sure, I think you've made a very, very strong case for why the two are linked. Now, um, you talked about a number of, like a host of menu of um, environmental challenges on the continent. What would you say is the single most difficult environmental challenge on the continent? And how do you think specifically this might be addressed? You talked about food and water. Would you say those are the two most difficult challenges? 
I think, you know, all of the different environmental and social challenges okay. are linked, okay. right? Because even if you look at forests, forests actually together constitute the lungs of the planet. They mm. absorb carbon dioxide and release oxygen. So you could say, you know, protecting our forests mm. are very important. Our oceans, apart from overfishing, are also suffering from a problem of ocean acidification, which is the excess carbon because of burning of oil, coal and gas okay. is turning our ocean to acid. But I would say, you know, if you want to, and of course, agriculture is critically okay. important. And part of the problem with agriculture is that the African continent, as a majority of mm -hmm. our farmers are women. Mm. They are small-scale farmers. And right now, they need to be supported, not with, you know, uh, forcing them to use GMOs mm. and uh, fossil fuel-based fertilizers and not imposing a industrial agricultural model because it's not going to work for those people. Mm. And it does, hasn't worked anywhere else anyway. So while all of those, you could say, are very important on a day-to-day -day basis, the reality is the biggest challenge that we face on the continent is how do we, on the one hand, assert our right to development, okay. assert our right to the fact that people have a right to electricity, mm. right? Have a right to running water, have a right to sanitation. But on energy, people have, you know, 1,6 billion people in the world today are completely energy poor, meaning they don't have access to a single light bulb. A good number of that number is on the African continent. I am as committed as anybody in the development sector to say it is a basic human right that people should have access to basic electricity. As somebody who comes from the educational background, I know how mm. electricity and education are sure. linked. You know, parents cannot support the kids at home if they do not have electricity in the evening to support the kids with the homework and so on. So the difficulty for us is Africa needs to get organized to speak to the rich world and speak to those countries that have benefited from fossil fuels, who carry a climate debt towards us, mm. And to say to them, we're not asking you for charity, we're just asking you to pay your climate debt. And on the other hand, we cannot be asking that for the one hand and say, as the South African government is saying, we're going to develop big coal plants and, mm. and so on and continue with fossil fuels. When our continent can turn the crisis of climate change into an opportunity because we are blessed not only underneath the ground, we've also been blessed above the ground mm. with abundance of solar, abundance of wind, not all over the continent, but certainly in many parts. We have the possibility of tidal energy mm. from our continent being surrounded by ocean. We have biomass, uh, you know, from uh, agricultural leftover produce and so on. So we can actually do two things on the continent. We can actually reduce our emissions but also do it in a way that we actually generate millions of new jobs, a new green inclusive economy. Just to give you one example, in Morocco at the moment, there's a pilot project by Siemens and a range of other international companies called Desert Tech. Okay. They are building a concentrated solar power facility in the Moroccan desert, right? Mm. Uh, unfortunately, the way I understand it, all the transmission lines, though, are going north towards Europe, but it's going to earn income for the Moroccan uh, government. But of course, we would also like to see some of those lines going southwards to support sure. the... But actually, what's needed to take Africa out of uh, energy poverty, African people out of energy poverty? Who are these people? They are rural 
small populations, mm. remote locations, and so on. And the way to do that is not by building a big nuclear coal power plant, but is actually through decentralized micro-renewable energy provision. What, for example, we're seeing in the state of Bihar in, in India that is happening. So there are examples elsewhere in the world. And there's no question about it. Climate change is the main thing because, mm. you know, at the end of the day, this fight is about securing our children and grandchildren's futures. Sure. And, and climate change threatens that in a fundamental way. In that sense, climate change is a game changer. We are running out of time. We are getting to the tipping point. We are still within a window of opportunity. And I hope that African political and business leaders will show a sense of wisdom, maturity, and courage in moving away from fossil fuels as soon as possible and harnessing the huge potential we have to not only meet our own energy needs through renewable energy sources, but also to look at what uh, potential we have to develop technical expertise and to begin looking at exporting that energy as the project in Morocco is showing promise to do. And why not for all the uh, countries which have huge amounts of land, which are mm. close to Europe, uh, if it can uh, generate income on the one end, but also meet energy needs locally, then why should we not do that? Africa doesn't have a huge carbon footprint, right? So how do governments and citizens on the continent hold governments in the West accountable for climate change? I mean, obviously, that's a fundamental question as well. Well, the short answer is with extreme difficulty. <laughs> <laughs> because the powers that be, right, uh, many of them control our governments, mm. right? I mean, the companies that Greenpeace and other environmental groups are campaigning against, you know, they are more powerful in financial mm. terms than most African governments are, mm. right? And so I believe that the African people as well as people in the global south more generally have a unique opportunity here to put the facts of the climate carbon problem in front of the world, which has been established. Okay. That, in fact, those countries that built the economies on carbon-intensive energy must now compensate those that are paying the price for it. Uh, and that's why already in the Copenhagen negotiations in 2009, we did get rich countries of the world to commit to $100 billion a mm. year uh, from 2020 to support developing countries so they, they don't have to follow the dirty energy pathway that the so-called developed countries followed to build their economies. So I feel that Africa has a very moral uh, morally persuasive argument mm. to say, you know, to Britain and US. US and other European countries that claim that they are supporting us by giving us development aid. Mm. It's a complete joke to say we are giving you uh, in one hand, you know, uh, one million to build a school. Mm. And then in the other hand, you are putting a fossil fuel project either in your own country or even supporting uh, companies from your countries to come and do that sure. because you actually are canceling the you know the, the the benefit for people sure. because this is what's going to this is already what is threatening africa and the rest of the global south's development parts and will do so more so in the future given what the climate science is saying and even if you don't believe climate science just look at the last 10 years mm. We have had a 100% increase in extreme weather events, yeah. and it has devastated many parts of the African continent already. 
Sure. I mean, I can attest to that being from Liberia, where the rainy season would last for six months. Now it's six to eight, sometimes 10 months, which is very disruptive. Now, land grabs have been identified as a new, quote unquote, scramble for Africa. And I'm curious to know what you think about the challenges these um, privatizations or leases pose to the continent. You talked about it earlier, but maybe you can expand on that. I think that African governments are finding themselves in a, uh, not only now, but for a long time, in a financially vulnerable position. Mm. They need to secure uh, hard currency, uh, they need to attract investment, and so on. I think the idea that a government can decide to lease a part of the land under its control to a foreign entity for a period of time in itself, Mm. in itself is not a completely outrageous idea. But when governments are looking at leases of massive pieces of land for long Long periods of of time, time, and where there are people who are engaged in productive agricultural activity that they've done for centuries and Mm. centuries, that is completely unacceptable. It's also unacceptable that some of these companies that are in the front line of these land grabs are actually quietly supported by governments who claim to be on the side of Africa's development and and on the side of Africa's people. So I think African political leaders must get a backbone now and stand up to this problem. Otherwise, we will find that not only have we given up the right for what is underneath the ground, as we've done for centuries, we will also now give up the right of what's above the ground which is critically important for sustenance, food, agriculture, and and, and so on. And yes, there's a lot of arguments will be given about short-term benefits. Mm. Let's be very clear. Much of these promised short-term benefits for multiple development projects that we have heard about over the many, many decades, very little has translated into real benefit for ordinary working people on the continent. And I don't believe the part that this land-grabbing exercises gone is going to do be any different if we do not actually wake up, call our governments to account and say to them, do not sell our children's future sure. for a short-term benefit and for maybe in some cases for personal and corruptive reasons. Sure. Have you come across any citizen movements you used to be a part of or you headed Civicus, which is this um, cross-continental pan-African movement of citizens just doing phenomenal activist work on the continent. I mean, have you come across any citizen movements that have responded to land grabs in a positive way and have sort of come out of it with um, with victory? Um, last year, I participated in uh, land grab public hearings okay. that took place in Johannesburg, organized by a range of African and uh, international organizations. There's a South African organization called PLAS, uh, which works in rural development, ActionAid, Oxfam, and and several others. And I was one of the commissioners listening to the evidence. So part of what we are seeing happening at the moment is uh, trying to get the facts and the Mm. the data on the table. Because bear in mind, land grabs are not happening in in urban centers. They're happening far away from the eyes and the... Uh, knowledge of of the majority of people in the country. So part of what civil society in Africa has been doing quite positively is 
trying to document it, highlight okay. it as a problem, force our governments to take a position and so on. All of that has been good. But where we are now, you pose the right question, is how do we move beyond that mm. in a context where our, many of our governments appear to be extremely impotent and weak? What is needed is a citizen's movement to put pressure on our governments to give them the backbone to resist the temptation of short-term economic benefit and also to ensure that we are standing shoulder to shoulder with African farmers, mm. particularly women farmers, who in these kinds of situations, because of African women even having more precarious land tenure rights in some parts of the continent even Absolutely. today, they have a double vulnerability. So civil society has a responsibility to stand with African farmers as a whole and African women's farmers who are the majority in particular. And 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 that must in and I think that will involve uh, protests and resistance if our governments are not prepared to protect the sovereignty of the African continent. Okay, someone said something to me, and I was a bit dumbfounded. I didn't know how to respond, and maybe you can give a, a provocative answer. And they said to me, um, "Why are people so concerned about environmental sustainability? Resources are finite. Um, what's the big deal? I mean, how would you respond to someone who says that to you?" Well, it's, out, it's amazing that such a question can be asked today because, yes, resources are finite, but certain resources can replenish themselves. Mm. Some cannot, right? The sun, you know, can replenish, wind can mm. come, uh, but also certain, you know, as at Greenpeace, for example, we don't say, we should not take a single tree out of any forest. Mm. It's a question of how you take it out, how you plan for its sure. replenishment, and how do you do it in a sustainable way. And the reality is already, if we look globally at the level of consumption, what we are taking out of the earth, it's as if we are living on one and a half planets. So mm. already we are beyond our environmental budget, if you mm. want. Mm. And then if you take another statistic, if everybody in the world was to have, in consumption terms, what people in developed countries and the elites in developing countries take for granted, and according to WWF, we would need between five and eight planets. So, yes, things are finite. Mm -hmm. And because they're finite, we need to use them in a smart way that actually appreciates the fact that we are having children, our children are going to have grandchildren, sure. and that, you know, there's, from an intergenerational solidarity perspective, if nothing else, we need to be thinking about how are we serving as custodians of these resources so that future generations can, can benefit. If we sh blow up a mountain, you know, as is happening in West Virginia mm. in the United States for coal, it's gone. If we knock down, as we've done, acres and acres of the Amazon rainforest, because the soil there is prone to desertification, you can't actually even engage easily in re reforestation. Not that there is political will to do that in Brazil anyway. Sure. So what people need to realize is that we are not saying we should not fish mm. in our oceans. We are saying one billion people on this planet rely on our oceans as a primary source of protein. And, of course, what we are saying is fish in a sustainable way. Fish such that our children 
500 years from now can still catch fish. Sure. Right? Uh, the way we are going, not according to Greenpeace, according to Newsweek, in a special study they did three years ago, in four decades, all the, they said, if we continue the way we are, because of overfishing, ocean acidification, as well as the dumping of toxics, including oil spills, mm. that in 40 years, all that could be left in our oceans would be algae and jellyfish. You know, 40 years is not a long time. Sure. You hopefully will still be alive. Hopefully. <laughs> and and so, so I think that there is a terrible sense of cognitive dissonance mm. because the changes that we have to make won't be easy. But I'm optimistic about it because if we are smart, we can have a double win. We, If we made the right choices, the right policies, the right implementation, we can by shifting from an economy that's driven by dirty brown fossil fuel energy to an economy that's driven by clean, green, renewable energy, we can generate millions of more jobs than the dirty energy industry mm. does and better mm. quality jobs. Mm. And we can do that in a way that's good for job creation, but also it's good for creating a energy system that's in the long term cheap, sustainable, clean, and actually empowers people, you know? Sure. I mean, today, there's nothing more empowering that I've seen in some small rural communities that I've visited. Uh, when people get access to a small solar panel mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they have the right support to use that one panel to generate electricity in a very humble dwelling. Sure. It's, you know, for people who have never had electricity access, you know, for them... It's like when a person uses an iPad or an iPhone mm. or, uh, you know, for the first time, it completely, you know, children can study, people can read the medical, uh, you know, if they've got a script, sure. things that people need for basic, you know, uh, living. So I believe it's within our capacity to, to change. But unfortunately, there are too many political and business leaders who are making hmm. a huge truckload of money out of the current system. And it's only, whether it's land grabbing or whether it's getting off fossil fuels, it's only citizen pressure that's going to get people to move in a context where time is running out. You know, if we had unlimited amount of time, sure. there's no reason for urgency. Sure. But the science is telling us we literally have, not years, mm -hmm. but, you know, months to actually uh, get carbon emissions to peak and to start coming down. After. Sure. I'm glad you mentioned big business because that's one thing I wanted to to maybe talk a little bit about is um, you've often mentioned citizens and then governments. But I mean, what is the role of big business? Obviously, their bottom line is profit. So y you working with Greenpeace, you often have to deal with big business and multinationals. What is the bottom line for you when you're discussing these things with them? What well, do they listen <coughs> to? What are the buzzwords that they they find you know relevant for their for their own case. Well, let me start on a light note. Right? Okay. <laughs> uh, what I've discovered, the easiest CEOs to speak about climate change and environmental sustainability issues are those that are in their second marriages and have young children. Huh. Because uh, they're thinking about their kids. I, I can't say this with absolute certainty, but impressionistically, I find that hmm. they actually are much more open. Interesting. And I think we have to understand that However, exploitative, Machiavellian, uh, selfish, greedy CEOs of big companies might be, at the end of the day, if they are parents and mm. so on, we need to keep that angle open in our conversations. Okay. But that's a very soft way to approach the issues because, you know, 
many CEOs of big companies will sell their grandmothers in a in a wink, you know, Absolutely. without thinking, right? So I think to to back on the humanity, it would be naive, but but not to not recognize. Sure. Right. Um, so what I'm finding is in the conversations with the business community, they get it now. They okay. are looking at the same signs that we are looking. They know that their businesses could collapse, you know, like a mm. ton of bricks if they don't get their head around what climate impacts actually mean. So on the positive side, what I'm hearing is more and more business leaders saying we need to do more with less, okay. meaning that we need to have less of a footprint, environmentally speaking, to do what we need to do, okay. uh, in irrespective of what business activity we engaged in. However, the problem is that in the DNA of business is more, more, more. Mm -hmm. More profits, more markets, more products, and so on. And actually what we need is also generally to do less. And so I find that the business community today is pretty bankrupt. You know, maybe not in financial terms, but in ethical terms, in a vision of where they want to go and so on. Because I can sit with CEOs of some of the most powerful companies in the world and be in agreement with them that we are running out of time on climate because they're looking at the same science and seeing the same extreme weather events and so on. But sadly, when we finish our meeting and walk out of the room, 90% of the time, there are exceptions. It's business as usual because mm. it's so difficult. Uh, you know, and, and, and part of the problem is, as I said in, when I was in India about three years ago, four years ago, actually, I said, you know, part of the problem is I, f I feel a s sympathy to CEOs of big companies because they are, quote, I said, strangulated by the tyranny of quarterly reporting cycles, right? Mm. Meaning they are so driven by short-term returns mm. that, in fact, this short-termism has really, really brought bad business practice, rec reckless business practice, irresponsible veering on criminal mm. business practice. So what is, uh, so the business community must now uh, understand that the current business model doesn't work, doesn't work. that there needs to be fundamental shifts our political leaders need to understand that they need to have a role also in helping to provide leadership of redefining mm -hmm. what makes a decent and um, livable life uh, and what constitutes happiness. Mm -hmm. We've got a situation where the business community with the very powerful role of a marketing industry that has manufactured desires, manufactured uh, products, and also manufactured a culture of disposability. I mean, if you go back and look at our parents' generation even, I mean, when they bought something, they used it mm. you know, for years and mm. years and years. Mm. We now consciously, yeah. the business community is constructing products which have a short-term shelf life, whether it's your laptops, your cell phones, or a whole range of other products. So the business community is nowhere where they need to be. Mm. Uh, they're still in denial. And having said that, though, the business community has to be made to be part of the solution okay. because they are the ones that are driving the environmental destruction, the emissions and so on. And we have to, we can, you know, we can take a view that they are part of the problem and mm. just ignore them. I think that good activism 
and I can tell you there are a lot of people within the activist community don't agree with me on this. Mm-hmm. This is not a popular thing to say, but I think good activism now must also mean a belief that the justness of our cause should give us confidence that we can actually turn around a significant number of business leaders who move away from the humongous bonuses and humongous remuneration and 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 who actually begin to take a more social uh, perspective on profit. Sure. Right? One is not saying that, you know, profit is by its fundamental, uh, you know, I don't particularly like the idea of exploitation and profit. Sure. But even if you accept it, it's crazy. You know, the levels of inequality between rich and poor, between the CEO and the least mm. uh, remunerated person in a company and so on. Come on. Sure. It's crazy. You know, and I just saw, even in the United States, the exploitation of people without whom our societies would collapse. Mm-hmm. The people who clean our streets and our offices and janitors and so on. So, and I was very pleased to see that when people believe, you can see movement. So in Seattle now, as a result of a grassroots movement, right, uh, Seattle just passed a $15 an hour living wage, okay. living wage okay. right? Uh, and But, you know, if you look at Seattle, one of the richest places in the world, Bill Gates comes from there and so on. To think that people are surviving at the moment on like six, seven dollars mm-hmm. an hour, mm-hmm. you know, and then there are people like Bill Gates and a range of other philanthropists saying, oh, we are supporting the world and sending money all over the place and so on. It's hypocritical. Sure. If people cannot address poverty on the doorstep, I feel that there's no justification to address poverty elsewhere. Sure. Let's um let's end on a positive note because I know there have been lots of challenges but you've also had some victories. Um in your work with Greenpeace or Civicus or any of the work that you've done, what would you say has been the greatest victory for you in terms of environmental sustainability and governance on the continent of Africa? If you can give us one vignette. I think that the biggest victory would be the partnership that we forged with the Senegalese government. Um, Before the elections, we showed them all the studies, the reports, and so on to all the political parties. They all took it seriously. But importantly, uh, Greenpeace had to change the way it operated. Mm, In the past, Greenpeace would go there with their specialists and put Mm. all their arguments and so on. Our activists will go. We we did some of that, of course, uh, even now. And our activists would go and uh, block the ships and cut the nets and stop the environmental theft of people's livelihoods being stolen from the ocean. That's what we would do, and we did that. However, we did something very, very different mm-hmm. and important, and we will continue to do more and more of that, which is first, before we did any of that, we went and made a connection with the people most directly affected by overfishing. Okay. And this, uh, These are the Senegalese this is fishers. fisher fisher okay. folk who were being put out of business. Mm. So, for example, when I went to meet with the fisheries minister in Spain, one of the countries uh, very uh, culpable, I went in with two Mauritania fisher folk Mm. and two Senegalese fisher folk Mm. representatives. And I said, Minister, you don't need to hear from me, you need to hear from these folks, right? And they tell the story in a more powerful way than any of us can, you know. Mm. So campaigning together with people uh, and that's what gave us power. So what we've seen is a win-win situation. We brought Greenpeace sort of international reputation and so on. And 
and folks felt maybe we can stand together with Greenpeace because you know they will be taken seriously and so sure. on. And so, so for me, this was a very important victory. But it remains to be seen now whether the Senegalese government will continue mm. to have the discipline of not going for some short-term licensing fee for these monster boats, sure. as we call them, uh, in favor of the livelihoods of local people. I mean, people can go onto our website and see the story of Greenpeace's work in Senegal. And it's amazing to Great. see six months after the moratorium was imposed that our people we're catching fish, we're feeding their families, we're mm. smoking fish. They said, you know, before we were like virtually getting to a starvation point and largely we had given up on it being a source of livelihood. So that is back. And I hope th what you saw there was political leadership from President Macky Sall. Mm -hmm. and, and that was because people pressured sure. him. Uh, and let's hope that that kind of commitment continues to stay. Absolutely. Maybe forward. it's a model that Greenpeace can follow in terms of using it in other yeah. African countries. And then, sorry, I should just say, we also do other partnership things. Like, for okay. example, the Mozambican government wanted to go after illegal fishing in on their coast, in the Indian Ocean side, and they approached us. We went there with our ship, and we had joint exercises together with them. Uh, and so that's not led to any specific action, but just okay. the fact that... Greenpeace and a African government can mm. work together. And we are totally committed to working with uh, the most vulnerable governments around the world uh, in partnership because we don't take money from government or business. Mm. means that we can work with anybody and we can constructively work with company A or government X on this and on something else where they are doing wrong things. We can criticize them because money does not contaminate the Great. relationship. Definitely. Thank you, Kumi. A call to action. Thank, uh, you, thank you very much for sharing your expertise on governance in Africa. This program is part of the Governance for Development in Africa initiative funded by the Mo Ibrahim Foundation in collaboration with the Center of African Studies at the University of London School of Oriental and African Studies. To listen to this program again or to listen to other programs in the series, please visit the website www.governanceinafrica.org. For more information on this initiative, email cas at soas.ac.uk. That's cas at soas.ac.uk.